0: This is Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi, two of the top web bloggers in the legal profession, and yes, they are attorneys, one from California and one from Massachusetts, squaring off on legal news and legal observations. Lawyer to Lawyer is sponsored by Law.com, right here on the Legal Talk Network.
1: Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrogi coming to you from Massachusetts. And this is Craig Williams
2: from Southern California. I write a blog called May It Please the Court and will shortly be publishing a new book called How to Get Sued, which is available at howtogetsued.com from Kaplan Publishing. Bob?
1: And I write a blog called Law Sites and a blog called Media Law and also Legal Blog Watch for Law.com. Well, the, uh, the legal publishing market is a nearly five billion dollar business. Legal publishing titans such as Thompson West and LexisNexis have led the pack in case law for years. Uh, In in more recent years, especially since the advent of the web, and and, uh, particularly in the last couple of years, there's been more and more of a move to move uh, some of this case law out of the hands of private publishers and more into the public domain. Uh, We're going to look a little bit about that. Uh, Free case law, of course, uh, allows attorneys, the the public, scholars, and others to get access to... uh, state and federal court decisions uh, without having to pay a subscription to do that. Well, org and precedent
2: are just a few who are trying to go above and beyond by breaking through the control of the competition and providing all state and federal cases current and older
1: online for free. Well, today we're going to on lawyer to lawyer we're going to talk about some of the uh work being done to bring uh, more case law into the public domain and to make that case law uh, more accessible to the public and to lawyers and to others. Uh, we talked about some of the technological aspects uh, of this and, uh, and what the future holds for those who are doing this work versus uh, those uh, more established legal publishing companies.
2: Bob, our first guest today is Professor Thomas F. Bruce, who is the director of the Legal Information Institute at Cornell University Law School, which, with Peter Martin, he founded in 1992. The Legal Information Institute was the first legal website in the world and currently draws more than six and a half million page views each week from an international audience. Uh, Professor Bruce is the technical architect of a number of online resources ranging from the Legal Institute's collections of primary and secondary materials to a bilingual edition of a 14th century law text. Mr. Bruce is also the author of Cello, the first web browser for Microsoft Windows. He's been a consultant for the West Group, for LexisNexis, and for the Folio Corporation and IBM and MCI. He's a fellow of the University of Massachusetts Center for Online Dispute Resolution and a senior international fellow of the University of Melbourne Law School. For over a decade, he's advised the Harvard Law School library on a variety of digital projects.
1: Welcome to the show, Professor Bruce. Hi, it's good to be here. And joining us next is Carl Malamud, founder of public.resource.org. Carl uh, created the first radio station on the Internet, among other things, and has long been involved in creating new applications for computer networks, He's the author of eight professional reference books. He's been the chairman and founder of several nonprofits that have made important contributions to Internet technology. He is perhaps best known for having created uh, large databases uh, on the Internet, such as the uh, original incarnation of the Edgar Database uh, and the U.S. Patent Database, and then getting the uh, respective federal agencies to provide those services for free themselves. Uh, for the past year, he's been actively working uh with people all around the country to create a full archive of all state and federal cases and codes uh, in the public domain so that they'd be available for anybody to use. Welcome to the show, Carl Malamud.
3: No, thank you very much.
1: Well, I have to say, this is uh, for me. This is a, a particularly uh, <laughs> uh, uh, exciting opportunity, just because I've I've followed uh, the work that both of you have done for for many years now, and and uh, have always been uh, uh, impressed by what you've been able to do. But but Tom, I, I wanted to talk start with you and, and just kind of ask uh, if you could maybe give us a, a, a kind of a, a capsule version of of how how it was the Legal Information Institute came to start publishing cases, and I, it might have been the Supreme Court cases that you started with way back when. Uh, but how it is you came to do that, and in, in, in what you've done over the years in that regard?
4: Uh, we started with with actually with legislation. Uh, we were first interested in in the U.S. Code, uh, but very shortly thereafter began doing Supreme Court cases that would have been in early 1993. Um, Frankly, because we were like a couple of eight-year-olds with a new ham radio (laughs) and thought that it would be uh, a lot of fun to see what would happen if we we started trying to move case law onto the web uh, and what that would enable, it it seemed like a a very good fit to us. We had done work at that point for several years with local hypertext platforms. Uh, And, of course, the idea that you could put case law out there and have cross-referencing that you could actually click and follow and get from uh case law to statute and statute back to case law again was enormously appealing to us compared to existing systems at that time or or compared to paper. So in a way it was a uh uh you know it it was just a very natural thing to do at the time.
1: And Carl I uh, I know that you've been working on a number of projects over the years as I said I remember when you first put Edgar up on 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 the internet but why don't you give us an overview of, of what your work has been over the last year in, with regard to case law?
3: Well, at the beginning of 2007, I started a new nonprofit to put more more public information online, and we spent some time harassing places like the House of Representatives to get congressional hearings online and the Smithsonian Institution. Uh, but but we also sat down and talked to some lawyers about about case law, and it just seemed like maybe the time was right to to add a little extra push. Um, there's been people like like uh, like Cornell, and there's people at at Columbia with and and Colorado with the alt law uh, program. Graham and and Tim Stanley at Justia that have been doing this for decades, Um, but it just seemed like with a little bit of extra push, we might be able to make some progress, and and so we started putting substantial energy into seeing what we could do to um, increase the amount of case law available for use without restriction.
2: Carl, you've experienced a little bit of a pushback on trying to get some things online. Who's been pushing back, and why do you think they're doing it?
3: well um it's it's less of pushing back than ignoring me when it comes to um, putting case law online for example we've been trying to have a dialogue with West and although we have a dialogue with most of their competitors, um, these folks won't talk um, they They just don't want to address this issue We've tried talking to the administrative office of the courts and and others um, and so despite you know great popular uh kind of uprising of people wanting to see this information and and actually using it the the kind of official groups uh have have preferred not to see this wave happening.
1: Although we should we should acknowledge here that, that some of the commercial publishers have been cooperative with you, and I think it was Fastcase that gave you your, your first kind of big dump of, of case data, and, and others have cooperated with you as well.
3: Absolutely. Um, Fastcase sold us data, of course. They didn't give us, um, but there have been a number of companies such as Justia and, and Precedent and others that have also been adding. The William Hine Company donated the federal cases. Um, so no, it's, it's not uniformly. Um, a, a lot of People think that 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 barriers to access on case law are barriers to innovation, and that by breaking those walls down and making this data available um, we 're going to get a lot more innovation in the legal profession we 're going to get better tools we 're going to get better access to the to the
4: things that you folks need to do your your jobs um, so a lot of companies see that as an opportunity I think that 's demonstrably true i mean just in the ten or more years that we've had to large case law and, and statutory corpuses available to academic researchers. There's been tremendous evolution in what people are able to do with natural language tools and all of that. And to some extent, we are as interested in what's going on as a platform for research as, as anything else. Uh, I think you're going to see some fantastic things happening now that larger and larger corpuses are available.
2: Tom, what's the goal of the Legal Information Institute? What's your mission?
4: Well, in general, we're sort of an uh, we're sort of an odd operation in that um, on the one hand, what we are primarily interested in is increasing intellectual access to law. Uh, so it, it's a sort of neat combination of a a research mission in information science on the one hand and the teaching mission of a law school on the other. Uh, and one of the things that we have believed in from the beginning is that you can't really do that unless you build practical collections that people are able to use. Uh, there's no sense in following the usual academic pursuit of building prototypes that you then very quickly abandon. The real test is, is trying to see if you build something that, that somebody can use and understand. And so that's been our main focus. We're um, in a sense both a research and public service organization.
1: And Carl, it, your work is focused really more on kind of getting the cases out there, and not necessarily uh, creating the uh, the uh, the structure to make them them usable or searchable. Uh, am I right that's in saying correct. that? And, and why do you think that's that's important to do?
3: Well, there are people like like. Tom out there at Cornell that, that live and breathe legal information, and they're the ones that, along with the law schools and the courts and the American Association of Law Libraries and and you know the whole legal profession is is going to use this data and and make useful tools out of it. But what's been missing um, have been two pieces. One has been policy change, raising the issue up to the level where where the policymakers um, at places like the Judicial Conference and the House of Representatives understand that this is a problem. And so we're partly in the policy change business. And then my my actual expertise, technically, is large databases. And, and so we've been focusing on liberating the archives that have been unavailable. Um, because, again, those are, are roles that, that um, it looked like it could use a little extra push.
4: Uh, and that's terrifically valuable to us. I mean, for years now, the, the problem with legal information has been that really nobody has known that there's a problem. The, the profession has been by and large, if expensively served by the private publishers. Uh, but the pra- but practitioners are only a, a small portion of the people who make daily use of this stuff, uh, and they have not been well served at all.
1: And what is the problem they don't know exists?
4: Uh, you have a tremendous number of people out there who are making continuous daily professional use of law who are not themselves lawyers, and that is an audience that has been really priced out of the market by the legal publishers. They've been largely invisible to policymakers, even though they are out there in huge numbers. Uh, All you need really do to get some idea of what the size of that potential market is, is to think about uh, people in regulated business, hospital administrators who need constant access to public benefits. law. I mean, it, it really is almost anybody and everybody.
3: Uh there's two groups I'd like to add to that, if I could. Um, the, the the theory is that the lawyers are well served by the current services, but I know a lot of of solo practitioners and and public interest lawyers that can just cannot afford the packages needed in order to be able to do their law. I know a solo practitioner in Northern Indiana that does you know divorces and things like that, but he's also an expert on on water rights, on on environmental impact of of using streams. So he helps farmers on a pro bono basis. And he says that the databases he needs to do that kind of work are are just totally out of his reach. The second audience who is incredibly poorly served are government workers. Those in the Department of Justice have access to the big deluxe packages. But, you know, there's lawyers all over the government, and a lot of those just don't have the the databases they need to do their job.
4: It's true. I get uh, get one email. uh, Every two weeks for, that begins literally with the words, I am a lowly government lawyer who, and it's, you know, somebody working in the office of the comptroller of the currency whose entire professional career revolves around three sections of the U.S. code. And <laughs> what they want to tell me is is how shocking it is that government's access to its own work product is as bad as it is. And then to those two groups we could add another and, and in some ways economically very interesting one, which is uh, that group of people outside the United States who are really largely disenfranchised by the Wexuses of the world who uh, who view American law as a very important export
1: product. But this, this, uh, the work that you're doing sometimes gets portrayed as a kind of David versus Goliath battle as though you are attempting to, to take on West or take on Lexus. And I guess what I don't understand is is why you can't all live in peace and cooperatively. I mean, it seems that West and Lexus have their place and their role and and can add a lot of value to this information, but, but the information should be out there at the same time.
3: Well, my beef is not with West and Lexus. They they should make as many billions as they possibly can. And you know, I grew up on the internet, and a lot of my friends went on and and you know formed companies that that are incredibly valuable today. So that I'm I'm not against making money. Um, but I am against barriers to access. And right now, a, a grad student that wants to form the next Google or the next West can't download American federal law. To the laptop and come up with a new search engine or a citator. And, and so there's this huge barrier to access right now, um that, that prevents people from getting into the business. Um, and that is a problem. And again, I don't, I think West is sort of like Microsoft in, in that once you reach a certain dominant position, um, you have a few extra obligations you need to do to make sure that the rest of the ecosystem is able to survive. And I, I haven't seen Thompson West taking those steps.
2: So, how do, the, how do the two of you get funding for your uh, respective projects? Do you rely on sponsorship, fundraisers? Uh, I mean, obviously, it costs money to be able to run those operations.
4: And we put a tremendous amount of reliance on our users. Uh, we run public radio style appeals twice a year. Uh, the next one's coming up around the 1st of June for anyone who hears this and feels like giving us a little money. Uh, and we are also supported through grant-funded work. We've actually uh, we've actually been – we were largely supported for four or five years by consulting work that we were actually doing for, uh, for West and for Lexus. Uh, so it's a little bit here and a little bit there. Um, and, uh, of course, our parent institution, uh, Cornell University, contributes a great deal to us. Uh, but it's uh, – and, you know, I, like Carl, I'm a little bit uncomfortable being portrayed as some kind of anti-corporate Robin Hood. Uh, those guys definitely – those guys definitely have their place and they do a very good job. Uh, it's just that there is a far bigger market out there than they are serving. And as Carl says, they're at the head of a value chain, uh, that, that to some extent they're blocking.
1: Well, it's why I raise it. I mean, I, in some ways I don't understand, I mean, it seems that, it seems that the, the major publishers themselves are, are, are one of the, one of the entities that, that's sort of portraying you that way. I, I mean, I don't understand why they see this as a threat because, I mean, obviously West, West in particular has uh, 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 a deep uh, database of, of secondary material and, and value-added material that uh, uh, seems like it will live on long into the future without, without concern over case law in the public domain
3: change is always scary to big institutions, be they government or be they corporations, Um, and I think maybe that's the reaction. Um, You know, some big companies are able to adjust to changes, and I've seen this happen with the Internet through several waves of different industries. I mean, we've seen it happen with book selling, and we've seen it happen with medicine. We've seen that totally change the doctor-patient relationship. Um, and some companies survive that change and, and some don 't and but it 's their opportunity to to take and and grab and and one would hope that thompson west and and red Severe Lexus would would do that um, but it 's also very tempting for these big companies to dig a hole in the sand and and pretend that that because of their position um they 're just not going to get hurt and if that happens if if they take that attitude of ignoring the the changes that are occurring in the world then then it's it 's not going to be good for them.
4: I think if I were in their position, I would be less frightened of a free alternative per se than I would of the idea that pricing information about legal information would become freely available. Because if you think about what they're doing, I mean, they really are like two competing gas stations on opposite street corners duking it out over the price of a gallon. And the minute that information about what they are actually charging their customers starts to become public. And as you guys know, in the case of large law firms, that information is far from public. Uh, they will be in a gas war. It's a kind of standard uh, duopoly cycling down toward marginal cost. So the idea that somebody would be out there discounting and doing so publicly, I think, is very frightening to them.
2: Neither of you think that you're ultimately going to put uh, West or Lexus out of business, do you?
3: wouldn't want to. oh i'm not I have no pretensions of that sort, and frankly i don't care um you know that that's between fast case and west and and president and and west and and justice and west and and you know I, I don't mind if people go out and and do well in these companies. Um, I I don't think West is going to be put out of business, but then, you know, one didn't think that Digital Equipment Corporation and Compaq would be put out of business either, and and they're gone. Um, when They were swallowed up by, by other companies. On the other hand, IBM, you know, did just fine when the Internet came along. So... It's really up to them, but but there's a much more core public policy issue, which is that we're a nation of laws, and um, you have to pass a cash register before you can read those laws, and and that's just not a good thing for democracy.
4: You know, the one one character that has not come into the drama so far, of course, are the courts themselves, Uh, because really, as a matter of public policy, what one would want to see uh, is an increased level of self-publication by the courts.
3: And they're starting that. You know, they're doing okay. As um, many of the courts are beginning to move along. Uh, the pacer system is very broken. Um, that, that's uh, you know tens to hundreds of millions of dollars of of wasted information technology procurement. No different than you know the the IRS or the FBI or other agencies that waste tons of money. Uh, but but many of the judges, certainly at the appellate level, are are doing a pretty good job of putting their stuff online. But that said, the judicial conference has really not acknowledged that this is ultimately their problem.
1: What do you, you yeah, think? Well,
4: they, they've put it online to be sure, but there's a real lack of standardization. It's not, it, it's very stovepiped information that in some ways is is rather difficult to use. Uh, PACER is probably the biggest unfortunate accident of timing in the history of, you know, computer technology. It was It was finished about three minutes before the net broke big back in the mid-90s, and they've been very reluctant to move away from it because of
1: that. But there's misunderstanding about even that. I mean, a lawyer just, just yesterday commented to me uh, along the lines of, well, isn't all the case law up on the Internet anyway? Uh, people don't quite understand what's there, what's not there, how to use it, uh, even among lawyers. Well, it's no, I'm sure
4: that's true
3: it's in flux right now there's some up there and some that isn't and the the free services are are slowly accumulating enough mass that they're going to be a significant research tool um not that they're not now but but a, a truly you know professional comprehensive we have the all the case law not just the last 10 years um and that's been happening and that that'll take a little while for that to happen though to finish up but yeah it's sort of in flux and it's certainly a mess
4: and once people realize that it has happened we'll go six rounds on the privacy issue
1: so at this point, Carl, you have, you've put up uh, all the federal series, uh, as I understand it. You're working of it. on not, adding... Not, you... not, yeah. what, else, what else have you brought into this at this point?
3: Well, what we have up is is about 80 percent, 85 percent of the courts of appeals decisions. So we we have most of F1, um, most of F2, and and F3. Uh, Supreme Court has been well served for many years by by people like Cornell. Um, we have put the federal cases up, the the predecessor to F1. That was a donation from from William S. Hine, of course. Um, we've got some state law up there. We've got some codes. Uh, we've also got a pretty comprehensive mirror. Of the government printing office databases, so we have a lot of congressional records, federal register, um, things of that sort, and we've also funded the Internet Archive to begin scanning um, a lot of the government documents, things like congressional hearings and, and other legislative and executive branch um, things. And then of course there's people like, like Cornell that have like the U.S. Code as well, so the, um, those pieces are beginning to come into
2: place. Well, we've come close to the end of the program for this segment, uh, and we'd like to get your final thoughts and your contact information for our listeners. So we'll turn it over to Tom and ask you to wrap up and, and then give us uh, your websites and contact information.
4: Sure. Uh, I'm easily reachable as tom.bruce at cornell.edu, uh, and the website is www.law.cornell.edu.
2: And your final thoughts about our conversation today?
4: Well, uh it it it's it it's been interesting. I mean, a lot of things are happening very quickly. Uh our own work over the next couple of years, I think is probably going to focus intensively now on how we make all of these individual collections work together. It it's it's clear that this is a problem that's going to be solved by some big actors like Carl and by some smaller actors like uh, smaller courts here and there that are putting their own stuff up. And, and one of the real questions for us is, okay, so now we've got all that individual stuff out, out there. How do we start making it work seamlessly? And that, I think, is going to be a very, very interesting issue.
2: And Carl. Uh,
4: well, our website is
3: public.resource.org. Um, and you can also find us just by searching. That's an easy way. Uh, my final thought is that we're a nation of laws and that our cases and codes are, are America's operating system and they need to be available for all of us as citizens. Um, you know, but, but for lawyers as well as citizens. So we, we have access to the tools. Um, we need to, to practice our professions, but also the tools we need to learn what it is that governs us. And so I, I think this is a vitally important public policy issue. This is not just about money, um, but, but it's also about democracy.
1: Now we need to take a short break at this point, And on the other side of the break, we're going to hear from uh, a spokesperson for the, the more established uh, part of the legal publishing industry, uh, Thompson West. We're going to talk to Andy Martin, senior vice president there. Thanks again to uh, our guests, uh, and we appreciate your time.
4: Well, it's been delightful.
2: Great. Thank you very much.
1: Thanks for being with us today. We'll be right back.
0: Lawyer to Lawyer is produced by the Legal Talk Network and a staff of broadcast professionals. If you have an idea for a topic or a show, we want to hear from you. Go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and send us an email. Check out our Lawyer to Lawyer host blogs, Jake Craig Williams' blog at MayItPleaseThePort.com, Likewise, Robert Ambrogi's blog at LegalLine.com for daily legal observations, perspective, and, of course, a healthy dose of humor and wit.
1: If you have a comment or question we want to hear from you, leave us a message on the Legal Talk Network listener line at 781-634-8959. We really do listen to the messages and even answer your questions on our next show.
0: A video settlement documentary can be the most powerful and persuasive way to bring about a speedy settlement in your client's case. The Boston Media Group has a staff of television professionals with 20 years' experience writing and producing compelling stories just like the ones you've seen on 60 Minutes or Dateline. We put a human face on the lawsuit with compelling interviews, dramatizations, and visual presentations of the facts. Think of it as a video-opening argument that will compel the attorneys on the other side to settle. Call us for a consult at 800-317-5221. That's 800-317-5221. Or check out our website at bostonmediagroup.com.
1: Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrogi.
2: And I'm Craig Williams. We now welcome to the show Andy Martins, Senior Vice President of New Product Development at Thompson West. Thompson West is the foremost provider of electronic workflow solutions to the United States legal profession and a business within Thompson North American Legal, a strategic business unit of the Thompson Corporation. Mr. Martins leads the team that designs and develops West's products and services for legal professionals, including the acquisition of content design of features, functionality, and user interface. Prior to his current appointment, he served as vice president of new product development, leading such initiatives as the West Law Litigator. Mr. Martins has been with West for more than 13 years, holding a variety of editorial and product development positions. Before joining West, he was an associate in the Labor and Employment Law Group at Fagre & Benson in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Welcome to the show, Andy
5: Martins. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Andy, I, I know you weren't with us in the earlier part of this program, but of course we were talking about, uh, uh, efforts in recent years to put, uh, more case law into the public domain. Uh, and, uh, obviously West, uh, you know, really pioneered the publication of, of case law back, back in the 1800s, but more recently, that the, the the discussion has often been kind of formulated as as one of who sh- who should own the law, who should own case law. I think when the Greenhouse used that uh, in an article in the New York Times about a decade ago uh, in, in talking about some earlier issues. Um, you know, how how do you view this? How do you view how does West view the the movement to put more case law into the public domain, and, and where does West see its role in all this?
5: Well, that's an interesting question. I mean, the law certainly needs to be available to the public, and that's something that that West has, frankly, focused on for the last 140 years. Um, we've traditionally and even currently focused on legal professionals and making it easier for them to get the, the right answers faster. Um, more recently, we've been begun providing uh, free legal information through our, our sister company, Fine Law, as well. Uh, So we've had a strong desire to make the law available um, primarily for legal professionals and secondarily for the rest of the public as well.
2: Is this a ground change in West's philosophy? I mean, ultimately, will you be providing content for free and relying on advertisers to make your money?
5: Uh, I I don't anticipate ever moving to an advertising-based model. Uh, Again, we're doing something fundamentally different than – the providers that make information available for free. Uh, We invest huge amounts of resources in making sure that all the content is right, uh, is up-to-date, and is deeply integrated with the rest of the information that a legal professional needs to make sure that he or she has a complete answer. So we link uh, the information to similar information, to analytical information, to news information, to information about companies. Um, Again, we're focused on professional legal uh, practitioners, and we'll continue to be focused on professional legal practitioners at West at our core.
1: I mean, of course, anybody in the legal profession, you know, I think recognizes that that West and, and other commercial publishers certainly add value to to, to raw legal material. Uh, West, uh, of course, notoriously through its you know key numbering system and headnotes. I mean, is it even is it is it fair? Is it accurate in your estimation? To to portray this as, a, as an issue of, of ownership of the law, or is your, is your stance really that you know, what you own, what you need to protect, is, is uh, the, uh, the value that you've added to all of this?
5: Um, the law belongs to everyone, and what we focus on is making the law easier to access and easier for professionals to um, get through as quickly and, and effectively as possible.
2: One of the positions that was discussed earlier in this segment was the uh, whole conversation about the solo and small firm practitioners who can't afford the level of access to uh, all of West's information. What resources are available for solo and, and uh, small firm practitioners within the, the uh, West style model?
5: We've got a variety of of plans available depending on the type of practice a person does as well as the type of firm they practice in. Uh, For example, a large national law firm has very different research needs than does a solo practitioner in, say, Winona, Minnesota. Um, We've got packages and plans available for all of their needs at price points that make sense for the individual practitioner.
1: We we have a... a, a a brief clip we were going to play uh, from our earlier conversation with Carl Mellomood, uh, of public.resource.org. Uh, let's hear that and ask you for your uh, response to that.
3: Well, my beef is not with West and Lexus. They, sh- they should make as many billions as they possibly can. And, you know, I grew up on the Internet, and a lot of my friends went on and, and you know, formed companies uh, that are incredibly valuable today. So I'm, I'm not against making money. Um, but I am against barriers to access, and right now a, a grad student that wants to form the next Google or the next West can't download American federal law to the laptop and come up with a new search engine or a citator. And, and so there, there's this huge barrier to access right now um, that, that prevents people from getting into the business. Um, and that is a problem. And, again, I don't, I, I think West is sort of like Microsoft in, in that once you reach a certain dominant position, um, you have a few extra obligations you need to do to make sure that the rest of the ecosystem is able to survive. And I, I haven't seen Thompson West taking those steps.
1: Andy, thoughts on that?
5: Well, I would disagree that there are fundamentally barriers to entry. I mean, the law is freely available from um, state websites, court websites, uh, and a variety of other sources. And I don't think that by virtue of the fact that we've invested for 140 years in enhancing our collection, we're, we're trying to exclude other people from working on the law. I think one of the things we're seeing Quite frequently now is a lot more small providers popping up. Um, so I'm, I would disagree that we're creating, um, barriers to other people getting access to the law.
1: Well, to follow up on his analogy to, to Microsoft, I mean, maybe this is an open source debate. I mean, is it, is there a point, uh, at which, has West ever considered making some of the raw data that it has uh, available for broader use while maintaining its proprietary, uh, enhancements to that data?
5: Um, That's not something that we're looking at right now.
1: How is the conversation going
2: with um, public.resource.org and groups like that? Is West actively engaged in a conversation to try and see if there could be a a resolution of what I think uh, John Shaughnessy, one of uh, Thompson's spokesmen, said was uh, a number of complex points?
5: Um, We haven't had... Extensive ongoing dialogues with Mr. Malamud or other, other providers in the space. I know he's contacted other providers of legal information and has obtained information from them, uh, but we haven't had extensive ongoing dialogues with them.
1: Is that something you ever expect to happen?
5: Uh, I, I don't know, hard to predict.
1: He, you know, I, I guess the the focus, obviously, uh, the focus on West comes in part out of the fact that that for so long it it had this kind of exclusive arrangement, whether by uh, by force of law or by force of default, uh, in the fact that it was there. You know, does it because of because of that have? Uh, it, Any special obligation with respect to the archives, the stuff that it has that goes way back historically that's not available in digital form? Uh,
5: There are archives available in other places as well. Um, I'm sure you're familiar with LexisNexis. They have an extensive legal archive. Um, There are legal archives available in a variety of places on the web, including Fine Law, which has, I believe, Supreme Court materials going back to the 1800s. So I don't think access to archival information is, is really the issue.
1: Well, for the Supreme Court, it's not. But, you know, for lower courts, trial courts, uh, some of the state appellate courts, it does remain in it.
5: And, again, we have plans to provide access to users who need those materials in a variety of different ways.
1: I know that uh, West has engaged in, in uh, litigation at various points. it been involved on one side or another in litigation over the years to protect its copyright. Is there uh anything uh currently going on uh in the courts with respect to uh, uh copyright in uh, legal materials that you maintain?
5: I'm not aware of any current litigation um, in that area.
1: Andy, we are getting near the uh the end of this segment uh and we wanted to before we do that, give you an opportunity to kind of give your final thoughts on this topic, uh, and also if you would like to uh, point our listeners to uh, a way to either get in contact with you to provide feedback or to, uh, you know, read more about uh, Wes's work in this regard uh, to do that as well. So why don't you give us your final thoughts and and uh, let us know of any contact or or uh, other information you'd like to point us to. Sure.
5: Sure. Um... West and Westlaw for the last 140 years has focused on um, providing accurate information to legal professionals and making sure that they can get the right answers fast so that they can find the needles in the haystacks that they're interested in, and we continue to focus on that moving forward. Uh, In terms of contact information, my email is andrew.martins at thompson.com. John Shaughnessy would be a contact as well Um, and would be happy to... uh, to hear from people about
2: it. Great. Well, thank you very much for participating in our program today. That about does it for Lawyer to Lawyer. Remember, you can check out all of our Lawyer to Lawyer shows on the
1: LegalTalkNetwork.com. Bob? Andy, let me add my thanks to your being on the program today, and uh, let me remind our our listeners that uh, all of our programs are also available on iTunes in the podcast library there. And we will be back
2: next week to discuss another large legal topic, the AMLA 100.
1: Until then, uh, thanks for listening. Bye-bye.
0: Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with Jake Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. Lawyer to Lawyer has been sponsored by Law.com.